You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Research in neurobiology over the past three to four decades has shown that the nature of the doctor-patient relationship can actually affect the patient's response to treatment. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Humphrey, and with me today is Dr. Alan Shore, a member of the clinical faculty of the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences at UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine and at the UCLA Center for Culture, Brain, and Development. He's published numerous books and articles in the areas of neuroscience, psychiatry, psychoanalysis, developmental psychology, pediatrics, and trauma. Welcome, Dr. Shore. Good to be here. Today, we are discussing the doctor-patient relationship from a psychobiological perspective. Is the doctor-patient relationship important in the treatment of disease? Absolutely. As you know, the perspective of my own work is the perspective of interpersonal neurobiology. Actually, that's the name of the Norton series that I'm the editor of. The essential idea of the concept of interpersonal neurobiology is that the structure and the function of the mind, the brain, and the body are shaped by social experiences, perhaps even more than intellectual cognitive experiences, that they are sh- the brain is shaped by these experiences involving especially emotional relationships. Now, on the matter of the doctor-patient relationship, there is now an intense interest in this problem, both in medicine as well as in psychiatry and psychology. It is now clear that that relationship, the doctor-patient relationship, has very similar qualities to other, all other important relationships in the lifespan, including the first relationship, the mother-infant relationship, but all intimate relationships, marital relationships, etc. The matter of disease is, in addition to being objectively diagnosed, must also be understood subjectively because the person's subjectivity is very much negatively impacted by that. What I mean to say that is that disease is occurring within the context of the way that also the patient is coping with that disease. And we know that there are variations in the way different personalities cope with disease. Incidentally, those variations are due to variations in the stress coping response, and that is the outcome of the early attachment relationship because we know that there are variations of the HPA, which sets up rather early. That means, therefore, that the nature of the doctor-patient relationship can either enhance the person's uh, sense of that the physician has an understanding, a deeper understanding of their uh, of their problem, or in some ways it could actually exacerbate it, and this goes for all relationships. There are communications between people beneath the words, and we all respond to these nonverbal communications. These give us a sense of being understood, of feeling safe, of feeling dangerous, etc. They're communicated. All of these studies have now shown that the communications in relationships are emotional, that again, beneath the words, they're communicated in tone of voice, facial expression, and posture. And so this has something to do now with the problems of making a connection with the patient and also with the problems of how the patient is forming a relationship, an ongoing safe and secure relationship with the physician that, again, ultimately can alter the stress physiology of the patient itself. The doctor-patient relationship can actually affect the disease process? Absolutely. That disease process, again, involves emotional factors. It involves the activity of the emotion processing right brain connecting into the hypothalamic pituitary axis. 
There has been writings, again, uh, in the Journal of General Internal Medicine by Adler and others now showing that essentially the patient-physician relationship is now being thought of not so much as the doctor being a provider of treatment as a co-participant in the treatment because we know now that there is ongoing regulation between the doctor and the patient of the patient's biopsychosocial states and we also know that empathy is a critical aspect to these matters. This also comes out of the psychotherapy research. We find in parallel there also showing that any good therapeutic changes in psychotherapy has to be also accompanied by an empathic therapist and by the patient believing that they are truly being understood on a deeper level. And again, the mechanism of this is through the regulation of the autonomic nervous system or the dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system, and that is also part of all diseases. Is this an evidence-based conclusion? Well, it certainly is in psychotherapy. There are now a large number of studies uh, looking at evidence-based research in psychiatry, in, in Axis one and Axis two disorders. There are also studies now clearly showing that there are brain changes in psychotherapy that the idea that the only pharmacology changes the brain and that psychotherapy changes the mind is not the case. It, that was too simplistic. We now see that uh, therapeutic contact, that psychotherapy, that the doctor-patient relationship also affects the physiology of the patient. These matters now are being studied at the level not only of, uh, of the clinical studies, but also at the level of looking at changes in the brain. And incidentally, the key changes in the brain that we're seeing from psychotherapy changes in the limbic system. So how is it possible that a brief interaction between a doctor and a patient, let's say seven minutes or 15 minutes, can have this profound an effect on that patient's treatment response? Well, I, you know, I would remind you of what it means that those moments where we've all experienced where there really is a sense of deeper contact with another human being, whereby the person is now, because we feel that we're truly being attended to, that the focus of attention is on us that there genuinely is an interest in our subjectivity and that somebody else is listening. The key to this really may be this matter of, of attentive listening, more so than a focus more on the subjective aspects than the objective aspects. That when we have these moments, we begin to drop the defenses, the, the neurobiology alters, etc. And at those points, whereby there is this kind of deep contact, uh, these things do make a change. At an earlier time, this was called bedside manner. All physicians were trained in these matters, and uh, I think we've lost sight of that. Studies have shown that even in small slices of behavior that, again, make contact beneath just the word, superficial words, etc., you can have a reorganization of the psychobiology and the physiology, and that can be critical. That also can enhance a feeling of safety and trust, and belief in the physician, and this has been shown to be important as to whether or not patients then go on to implement the psychopharmacology even that the patient has recommended, etc. 
So again, these intimate uh, factors are psychobiological factors, and they're they're critical ones, and they have to be. The matter of empathy now is being thought of very seriously, not only in psychiatric and psychological training, but in medical training. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Humphrey, and with me today is Dr. Alan Shore, a member of the clinical faculty of the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences at UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine and at the UCLA Center for Culture, Brain, and Development. We are discussing the doctor-patient relationship. Tell us, if you would, what are the key elements of the doctor-patient relationship that you would recommend that every physician observe? Well, again, let me just say that this is in the medical literature as well as in the psychiatric and psychological literature, and showing that the in the psychiatric literature showing that the capacity of the clinician for empathy is a key to whether or not they will be changed on the other side. Well, what's, what we're seeing it comes directly out of the early infant relationship research, and that is to say more so than the analytical, logical, sequential, verbal communications, it's the nonverbal communications that appear to be essential. It's the emotional communications between human beings. If you will, just as the left brain communicates to other left brains conscious ideas, the right brain is always communicating these nonverbal communications. We now know the essential elements of these are, again, the tone of the voice, and I point that out because some studies have shown that physicians who use sarcastic tone of the voice are more likely to be sued. The tone of the voice uh, gives us the sense of safety, et cetera, and understanding. Number two, the facial expression. All human beings read facial expressions, and if you give a verbal message and you give a facial expression, we read the facial expression. And number three, the matter of touch, the matter of proprioception and gesture also are keys to this. So it's really becoming much more aware of these cues coming out from the patient. Sometimes the patient's words will say that everything is fine, etc. And yet intuitively we, we non-consciously see a facial expression of pain, etc. And we're now looking to make deeper contact underneath the words. Now, again, these nonverbal emotional communications are really much more critical because they are a direct reflection of the body state. They're not under voluntary control. Actually, these are output readouts of the autonomic nervous system through the eyes, etc. These are involuntary responses, etc. And so essentially what we're talking about is a communicator, is somebody who is more able to, to read these emotional communications as we move along in the lifespan. And just as we use that in our personal relationships, these can also be used in our personal relationships with our patients to make that more of a personal relationship, to focus more on the subjective than just only the objective. In the end, we have to have both of those together to get a full picture of the patient. How rapidly do human beings, adults, let's say, perceive changes in facial expressions in another person? Well, you're talking about 250 milliseconds, that's a quarter of a second, for something to be held by the brain to reach consciousness. The brain can read, the right brain, not the left, the right brain can read 
safety, danger, familiar, unfamiliar, male, female, etc., in well under 100 milliseconds. In fact, the uh, the subcortical parts of the brain, the right amygdala, which is the essential fear center of the brain, can process a face and send it into the body and into the HPA axis in under 50 milliseconds. So these are extremely rapid in moment-to-moment uh, analysis. And again, the body is responding. If you give a facial expression to the left hemisphere to kystoscopically, you will not see an autonomic response. If you give it to the right hemisphere, you'll see an autonomic response rather quickly. Uh, and again, if you give a verbal response to a human being and a nonverbal, the body will always believe the nonverbal. So these are very fast-acting processes. And psychotherapists are all, of all persuasions now are learning how to track the moment-to-moment state shifts in their patients focusing in on affect, because again, one of the important discoveries right now coming out of neuroscience is the centrality of affect, much more important in the end than conscious cognition. Most all psychiatric disorders are disorders of emotion regulation. I want to thank Dr. Alan Shore, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing the doctor-patient relationship and what neurobiology can teach us about that. I'm Dr. Laura Humphrey. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.